Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories of the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. We've had a lot of new listeners to the podcast in the past couple of weeks, so if you're just discovering the Bunker, don't forget to follow us on your favourite app. And if you want to help us keep going and expanding, you can support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes for early episodes, merchandise and more. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is Chief Exec of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hi Naomi, how are you? Caffeinated, Justin, caffeinated. So. This is what I like to hear, bright eyed and to lay out the news for the ahead. Now, um, the war in Ukraine is grinding on into its fourth week. Overnight, Ukraine rejected Russian demand to go up the city of Mariupol by 5am Moscow time, while buildings, including a shopping centre and housing, were all hit overnight in Kiev. Obviously, we're not party to military planning, so I'm not going to grill you on that. But on the home front, we're increasingly starting to see this issue shaping and dominating our domestic politics. As of Friday, the Home Office said that 8,600 visas have been granted under the family scheme to Ukrainians fleeing the war. By contrast, Poland has taken in just north of 2 million people at the time of recording. Naomi, are the government starting to get up to speed on this following a start that I think you could describe as very sluggish, if you were being charitable? I mean, <laughs> up to speed, the speed that they need to be at, absolutely not. The numbers of displaced Ukrainians is now, I mean, I think reported to be north of 10 million. So for the UK to still be only offering, you know, these two routes into the UK, one family repatriation or two being sponsored by, you know, the likes of you and I offering a spare room is is frankly woeful. And you said it yourself, you know, Poland has taken two million and we're still there, you know, only only offering the, the low thousands at this stage. So the right direction, but pace and means incredibly slow. And any time I talk about this, I also have to talk about the fact that there is almost no route for other refugees, specifically, you know, when we're thinking about those fleeing places like Afghanistan after the, the, the retreat of the West last summer. It's incredibly difficult, if a if at all possible, for Afghans to make it. So we're failing refugees the world over, I'm afraid. Yvette Cooper last week rounded on the Home Office for a specific lack of preparedness on this front. She was pointing out that the Russian invasion was a well-telegraphed possibility. Plans should have been in place beforehand. Are there any changes of personnel or approach (laughs) on the cards at the Home Office which might actually improve its performance? I mean, we keep being told that it's not fit for purpose, but what does it actually need to be doing differently? Well, we do keep hearing that. So there was a not very kind write-up by Politico, uh, I think leaked by a senior government person saying that the most intelligent civil servants are in the cabinet office and the least intelligent ones are at the home office. That's probably a very unfair characterization. However... As we often say, the fish rots from the head, whether that's Johnson and his government or, in this case, Patel running the Home Office. It's very hard to see how things can improve there while she remains in post. I just don't see how any other big changes uh, can happen in the right direction there. Now, remember that Michael Gove is now the one sort of bailing out the Home Office in his rather oddly named brief of Minister for Everything Else, basically, you know, levelling up agenda, housing, communities, local government, elections, etc. He's the one, and it's his department, that are running the scheme to sponsor a Ukrainian. So she's not even being trusted to deliver on the one thing that 
everybody knows is happening in the world that we need to be reacting to. And that is quite clearly because this is a migration issue, the purview of the Home Office, but she's not being trusted with that. So look, I'm sure there are some very capable people at the Home Office who are sort of gritting their teeth and grinding their teeth and having to work around her. But until she's gone, I just don't see how how it improves. That said, you know, her, her predecessors have also created a hostile environment and implemented it very successfully. So while this government is in charge, it's not clear you know, how how things would markedly change. Looking for very thin silver linings in the current situation, um, the response of the British public has been huge and encouraging. 130,000 people have registered to open their homes to refugees, um, a figure which seems completely at odds with the kind of small-minded xenophobia that this government typically trades in. Um, There's also now talk that the home sponsorship scheme may be opened up to arrivals from the other parts of the world that you just alluded to, most of whom are currently stuck in hotels or temporary accommodation. Is this another example of a populist government seeming to actually have a rather shaky grasp on what is popular among the voters? Yes, and I said this on our sister podcast last week, Oh God, What Now?, that when you looked at Gove's frustration in the Commons last week, where he really lost his temper and said, you know, I am sick of people saying that, you know, Britain does not have a good record on asylum seekers and refugees. I got his frustration because if you spent your entire career pandering to what you believe is the view of the British electorate, that they are xenophobic, that they are protectionist of their borders. They don't want migrants coming over here. And then all of a sudden you realise that, uh-oh, I misjudged that. Actually, the three quarters of people plus in the UK, according to YouGov polling, think the government should be doing more to help those fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. And of course, we're now seeing these hundreds of thousands of Brits sticking their hand in the air saying, yep, they can come and live with me. If you're not going to sort them out properly, they can they can absolutely take our spare bedroom and you know we'll, we'll give them refuge. So I think they have misjudged it. I think what's also important to remember is that if, if you rewind sort of Back to 97 and the you know advent of, of New Labour and New Labour government, the, the Ipsos-Murray polling on sentiment towards immigration in the UK, which is probably the longest running tracker of it, it wasn't a top 10 issue then. Mm. And then when you fast forward through successive governments with their failed socioeconomic policies, their failure to build enough quality homes in the UK, their failure to provide decent infrastructure in and around areas that either did have some new housing or did have large influxes of migrants, then it's no wonder that you skip forward to the referendum period, the Brexit referendum period, and find that sentiment to immigration has, you know, markedly declined and people are really quite angry about it and it becomes a, you know, top three, top five issue for people. But it is worth remembering that when you do these kinds of polls and you ask people about it, as soon as you drill down into the but what about, sentiment changes in the other direction. So, well, do you mean those fleeing conflict, famine, persecution for their you know sexual identity whatever and people say oh no 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 not them they're 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 there of course they can come of course britain must still offer sanctuary and refuge to those people we're talking about the economic migrants that are coming over here and driving down wages which of course in itself is untrue but was the perception or do you mean international students how do you feel about them temporarily coming over here to study and immerse themselves in british culture only to graduate and 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 go home again oh no 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 students are fine students are fine so i think the government has conflated 
all immigrants in their in their own mindset when when policy making and they've they've called it very badly staying with ukraine and looking at the longer view there was an interesting intervention this weekend where gordon brown and john major were among 140 academics lawyers and politicians who have signed a letter calling for a new legal system modeled on the nuremberg trials of the nazi war criminals after world war ii to deal with putin and his accomplices um the international criminal court is already investigating the russian leader for war crimes in the ukraine so why is this letter calling for a different system what are the icc's limits or shortcomings That's a very, very good question. Now, the International Criminal Court, their powers are sort of devolved to them by the UN Security Council. And the UN Security Council, of course, has Russia as a member. And Russia could veto that. So it's, you know, it's this difficult situation where you set up international organizations and institutions in a in a bid to have global peace and reconciliation and you know the major powers of the world pulling together rather than against each other but then when one of them goes rogue as obviously Putin's Russia has done the the, the system fails so um i think what you know the the, the uh, authors to this letter have basically been saying is that we we just need a a, a system that bypasses him because of course there can be very little doubt that he has committed war crimes when you're looking at the fact that humanitarian aid routes have been attacked with with weapons the the, the use of you know really horrific weapons um as 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 you mentioned at the top of the show you know the killing of people in hospitals and schools is 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 clearly a war crime so yeah i think that that essentially what what these authors to to this letter are trying to do is to find another way to hold him to account moving to the domestic front this wednesday we'll see chancellor rishi sunak delivering the government's spring statement the headline from this is expected to be that quote tax increases are done Speaking at the Conservative Spring Forum, he said, we've made the difficult decisions that we have to make. My priority going forward is to cut taxes. Given everything going on, is this actual prudent economics or is it primarily a bit of red meat for the right wing of the party to keep them happy? Just in prudent economics. I mean, <laughs> what do they say about... Air quotes going on there. Which yeah, you know, you have however many economists in a room and you've got twice as many opinions as to you know what good economics means and is as a Keynesian of course I I don't think this is a good idea I am interested though as to why VAT and the VAT cut isn't being talked about more by Labour Mm. or other conservatives I mean look they're in they're in big 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 trouble on this I think it's their weakest flank at the moment and I know that we're going to probably talk about the cost of living crisis in a bit more detail later but this is a, an incredibly difficult mini budget spring statement whatever it's called to to deliver and at the weekend there was the Conservative Party conference and so both Sunak and Johnson were doing their level best to appeal to the base. Johnson most egregiously by equating the plight of the Ukrainians to those who were fighting for Brexit. I mean, it was just absolutely grotesque. That, that was genuine, even by his standards. Even that, that was a low, and, 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 was a low ebb. And there are reports that he is uh, sorry he said it. Not sorry that he thought it. Not sorry that uh, uh, that that he should, you know, the thought should never fucking cross his mind. But he, um, 
of course, completely failed to acknowledge quite purposefully that the EU is the greatest peace project in human history and that Ukraine has applied for membership, you know. So it was just, it was wrong on every level as well as being just, a, you know, a grotesquely insensitive thing to say. But Sunak was also, of course, canvassing the Tory party membership. But not just them, of course, if there is to be a leadership struggle within the Conservative Party, he's going to be thinking about his MP based as well and where their heads are at. And of course, you've got this very powerful libertarian flank within the party headed up by Steve Baker as their sort of honorary head boy. And so there will have been a lot of that. And also, it, it's, it's an old playbook that has worked for them in the past. So after the financial crisis, very easy for the coalition government to blame New Labour for the ills of much of that and then start saying, oh, we now have to have austerity because we have to cut back because we have overborrowed. There is too much heat in the economy. So, you know, let's let's cut back on things. And so now I think it's who are the voters that are going to be feeling the pinch that, that that tend to vote conservatives and what can I give them? And you know, this is this is the rich. These tax cuts are not designed to help many of the poorest people. So I think this is poor economics, yes, but obviously economists from the more uh, (laughs) fiscally conservative end of things would probably disagree with me. But I mean, to that point, analysis by the New Economics Foundation has warned that just 7% of the benefit in these tax cuts is going to go to the poorest fifth of households, while the richest fifth are going to hoover up one third of the savings. How does this square with all the big talk of leveling up which was the you know in the dim and distant past of what, yeah 12 months ago yeah. was the was the central plank of the government has that now just gone Absolutely. out the window? i mean you, you, i think you you you've answered your own question by yeah. saying big, big talk of leveling up it has only been talk we have seen precisely nothing of substance that will help to level up the country plenty of leveling down plenty of you know helping you know, parts of the country that were perhaps less, you know, struggling in terms of wages and, you know, other other income indicators, but absolutely nothing that really delivers when we're looking at how HS2 debacle was handled and how, you know, some of the poorest parts of the Northeast are now, you know, totally bereft of any kind of substantive infrastructure, etc. No, you know, major departmental moves that have been talked about in terms of civil servants that could then create jobs elsewhere. You know, no, it just hasn't happened. So it is all big talk. And the New Economics Foundation, I think, are on the nose, as are Resolution Foundation and others. They're basically saying you actually need benefit rises. We need to be mm. supporting people with more benefits rather than tax cuts for the rich, as 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 you've basically said, you know, very, very small chunk of people that will be helped from this kind of tax cut at the lower uh, end of the income bracket. Now, over the weekend, a lot of the talk was about national insurance rises. And that right flank of the party, notably Esther McVeigh, for instance, saying that, you know, you've got to stop the national insurance increase. So that, again, is a wedge issue. But then fuel. Fuel is the headline act. It's the thing that we all know about. It's the thing that we're all feeling immediately because it's still quite cold here at the moment. We're all trying to heat our homes and all of our energy companies are either going bust or hiking our prices up to such eye-watering levels that we're not just talking about the poor being able to struggle with that, you know, even middle 
middle income households are going to have to make some pretty tough decisions. And Martin Lewis, who's the money saving expert, often touted as one of the most trusted people in the UK. He's saying, I am out of tactics I can give people and tools for budgeting and managing their finances, their household finances. The the things are now so bad that this is a genuine choice between, you know, previously it would have been times of belt tightening. Oh, look, I can either afford to get the kids haircut this month or, you know, not putting money in towards the the holiday this summer. Mm. Now those choices are as stark as do I feed the children or do I keep them warm by turning the heating on? And so we need to have an intervention that is not just about tax cuts, but is actually about increasing the welfare state for those that really are just not going to be able to survive this without making brutal household decisions. I mean, while the really severe price hikes have yet to hit, as you said, the increasingly loud warnings of what's coming down the pipe are absolutely dire. Are we seeing anything coming through in the polls yet? And when this really does hit, do you think it's going to help the government at all if they can say, well, prices are rising everywhere, you know, it's global factors, or are voters likely to blame them anyway? When you poll whether or not the government is doing well on the cost of living crisis, 80%, north of 80% are saying they're handling it badly. Mm. However, when you poll, which party do you most trust to deliver on the economy, the war in Ukraine, you're getting Conservatives ahead of Labour, and then conversely, as usual, and who do you most trust with the NHS and things like that? Of course, Labour's ahead. So it's not going to be enough for Labour to hope that the cost of living crisis hurts the government enough to make people change their minds because change their minds to what voters will be thinking but i i don't trust labor with the with the economy so things are bad really bad i sure as hell can't afford to make them worse and so that will be the and and all the messaging coming out of number 10 will be well you definitely can't trust those guys we know things are bad we are doing what we can as you say the world over you know supply crisis issues war etc no no countries going unharmed by this we're doing our best but my goodness you shouldn't trust the other guys with this so labor are really going to have to do whatever they can to cut through on this issue to use sharp elbows to get the airtime to put forward their vision of you know respectability trust and credibility on the economy and that vision for how your life will be better and safer and more secure if you back us at the next election and just finally for the weekend the message from most of those big speakers at the conservative forum was that party eight is well and truly over and politics has moved on to bigger and worse things um has johnson ridden this one out I mean, look, it's a cat with nine lives for sure. And the war has definitely distracted from all of that accusation. And it's not clear yet if and when the Met Police investigation will report on that wrongdoing. I think people probably have started to to forget about it to an extent. And I would certainly think that the cost of living crisis is the thing that's going to be the hardest for them and and the one they're going to have to focus most of their attention on. But who knows? Look, he, he may not be out of the woods with it yet. And I think what has happened since Partygate kind of diminished in the news agenda is that it has been replaced by this cronyism with oligarchs and his closeness to 
Evgeny Lebedev and others, um, and the amount of Russian money that has clearly, you know, been donated to the Conservative Party, and of course Johnson elevating him to the House of Lords, potentially against the advice of security professionals and and you know advice that he he was he was allegedly given about doing that. So that is all of a piece of the kind of coziness, corruption, friends in high places, dodginess, rule breaking having his own interests at heart rather than those of the country. So I think if if a narrative can persist around that, the party gate element of it will sort of help to reinforce and still cause him some problems. But the war, as ever, is, you know, just distracting almost everybody from everything else. Staying with UK politics, the Times also reported over the weekend that David Canzini, the Prime Minister's new Deputy Chief of Staff, had warned advisers on Friday there was a strong possibility of an election being called early for autumn 2023. The clock is ticking, warned Canzini, saying Conservative MPs needed to be wooed, especially those who have openly plotted against the PM. They are all, yeah. God's, chil- they are all God's children, he said mysteriously. <laughs> um, <laughs> So David Brent, pure David Brent. Uh, What do we know of the kind of shape this campaign is likely to take as they quietly let the starting gun on this one? I mean, I think if you are a listener to this podcast, the chances of you liking the shape of this campaign are next to none. Topping the list, coming in at number one, Brexit. Um, And Canzini has... Apparently, you know, it told them all, if you don't think that Brexit and delivering on Brexit is a priority, you shouldn't be here. So obviously, for most people, not only has there been very little, if anything, in the way of opportunity from Brexit, but things are a lot worse, particularly if you are an SME owner or a family that's, you know, struggling with seeing people because of, you know, settled status issues that still persist at the Home Office. So number one, as I said, is is Brexit. Of course, the cost of living crisis is going to be there as a thing they need to tackle. Now, this is interesting because there is now this sort of growing tension between number 10 and number 11. Sunak is trying to, you know, get the economy into a better shape. He believes that because he holds the purse strings, he should have more power and control over government decision making than any other uh, Secretary of State Department head because... They can't really do anything unless he's prepared to pay for it or they have very little at their disposal uh, otherwise. But the levers that he will want to pull on that, I think, will probably be at odds with what the 2019 new intake Red Wall MPs will be needing and wanting in terms of response to the cost of living crisis. So interesting tension happening there. Their third one, I think, is going to be the NHS. They know that Labour still polls you know, way ahead of them in terms of who do you trust with it. Um, we've seen, obviously, the, the NHS that was already struggling come under such immense pressure because of the government's terrible handling of the pandemic that waiting lists are you know, still in a, in a very bad way. And the extent to which a dysfunctioning really can be questioned, but but God bless it, it needs to. Uh, and then the final thing is going to be around crime. It's not clear what, but, you know, tough on crime is, is always going to be part of their mantra, I would imagine. And then migrant boats was coming in at number five. Now, I think that is very specifically targeted at what we were talking about earlier, that Brits tend to not dislike genuine refugees as they see it fleeing persecution but they don't necessarily equate that with brown people on dinghies 
crossing the channel, putting their lives at extreme danger, sometimes with their children, sometimes their children alone because of the desperate situation that they're fleeing. Um, so migrant boats is obviously something that is cutting through with their voter base and they don't want people applying, trying to, to reach our shores through through that system, um, which of course is why we need to have safe routes for those people to come over and not sort of have every other avenue cut off to them by Pretty Patel. What an, uh, what an edifying prospect before us for the next uh, 18 months. Um, and finally, last week's unceremonious sacking of 800 P&O ferry workers to be replaced with cheaper agency staff is continuing to have repercussions. P&O is being threatened with criminal charges. Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng has warned the company that could face unlimited fines. And even the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Dover have weighed in against the firm. Even by the standards of big business, this seemed a remarkably cold-blooded move. And there was some talk that this is the first example we're seeing of a company taking advantage of a post-Brexit loosening of legislation in order to attack workers' rights. Is that actually what we were starting to see? And can we expect the same in other sectors? So... Those of us that campaigned against Brexit and in favour of another referendum used the argument over and over and over that this will cause a bonfire of our workers' rights and our standards more broadly. The whole point of a single market is that you agree to a common set of rules and regulations. The EU is a rules-based organisation, something that our negotiators always struggle to get their tiny little heads around. And we knew that there would be any and every opportunity by market fundamentalists to take away things that cost business money, like workers' rights, like high environmental quality standards around food, etc. So all of the talk about doing deals with countries outside of the EU that have lower standards on things like food hygiene or you know environmental regulations to abide by when producing products etc would be where our government would be trying to take us um, and to diverge and to have that regulatory divergence away from Europe however while I do expect us in the post-Brexit non-sunlit upland world to have a government constantly trying to lower our rights, our democratic rights, our work, you know, our employment rights, and our health and safety standards. I don't know that we can yet make the causal link of Brexit to what happened at PO, which I agree was absolutely disgraceful. And if you are being made redundant, it is because the role is no longer viable, the role no longer exists. But to fire and rehire as agency worker means that is not a redundancy. That is a, a sacking. And I don't know enough about the contracts that all of those people were on and the jurisdiction that those contracts were signed in as to whether they are, you know, they would have had to have abided by uh, British employment law as it currently stands or whatever. But what I can say is that Brexit was sold to so many people as, oh, migrant workers come here, they don't need to earn as much money because they send a lot of it home and the cost of living in their home country is less, so they are having a deflationary impact on British workers' wages. And once we've left the EU, we would no longer have freedom of movement there won't be so many EU citizens working in the UK and that will raise wages for British workers. 
now in the first major collapse of a of an employer since we left the transition period what have we seen we have seen hundreds of british staff laid off replaced by cheaper agency workers the majority of whom are non-british so on those terms brexit has already failed but i don't know that we can yet sort of make a causal link between brexit and the fact that the the the, the collapse happened and that is start your week naomi thank you for getting up early today Thank you very much. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Don't forget, you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon. We'd be really grateful and it would make a big difference. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow for the panel show. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk with Naomi Smith. The producers were Jacob Archibald and Jelena Sofranievich. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer is me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Ken Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.